D.A. Carson said, the more that I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. I want you to hear that again. The more I study these three chapters, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to a spotlight, but the light is so bright that it sears and it burns. I love that quote. I love that quote because I believe it to just be an, a, a, a raw, unfiltered, simple, unadulterated truth that what's found in these three chapters of Scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, will both inspire men's heart and, and, and will literally wring out every ounce of self-righteousness that they possess. And so before we enter into our study, I, I want to spend some time just warning you a bit. If you want to hear the very heart and see the very heart of God on display, if you want to know Him and to know your purpose in this world, if you want to know about life and about God and about the kingdom of heaven and about how all three of those things should interact together and come together, then I would encourage you to join us over the next six months. Because as you do, and and you say, I I don't know that I can be here every day for six months. You can listen on the internet if you miss. Because as you do, I believe this with all my heart, God is going to do a work in your life like you wouldn't believe. But, if you're here this morning, if you're here this morning, and you at any, and on any level, find yourself to be content with life the way it is, even the, the little tiniest bit religious, if you're here this morning and you're a self-sustainer, if you're here this morning and, and church is just that for you, you got to confess that, that church is just something that you do to check off a list to feel a little better about your life. If, if any of those things describe you, then heed this warning. This study, the, the, these texts taken in, in, in context when we interpret them correctly will ruin you. They will completely wreck your life and, and, and put you on your face before a holy and just God. That's what they'll do. And, and so I want to warn you rightly this morning. Choose. Choose wisely. I pray your choice is, is to sit through the study and to sit under the study and to be a part of this study. But I want you to know that there's power in the chapters that we will study together. Now, having warned you, I want to answer some questions for you. I prayed about this morning and, and how should we attack this and uh, in my mind, I would think as somebody that's sitting here, I would have some questions for a pastor that said, hey, we're going to study something for six months. Like the first one being, really? Why? Why, why are we going to study this? And so that first question maybe you have is, man, why are we study right now? And I'm just going to answer it um, from a pastoral perspective. And I quite simply put, because I believe this to be God's leading. I believe this to be God's leading. Pastors, um, operate and, and set up their teaching schedules in a couple of different uh, ways. There, there's two approaches, really. One is what I like to call reactionary, and that means that as a pastor, I believe that I have the ability and the foresight to see what's going on in your life, and then I take whatever whatever plagues you, and, 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 that, and then I try to address it from the pulpit. Okay? I'm reacting to what is already going on in your life. Okay? That's kind of reactionary preaching, and there's a place for it. It's highly topical. 
means that if, if you're struggling with marriage, then I'm going to teach on marriage. If you're struggling with this, I'm going to teach on that. It's very, very topical. You kind of feel like you're all over the place, and that's okay, and there's a place for it, and I do it sometimes. Uh, the, the, the second form, I would say, as we approach our teaching schedule would be what I would call a guided approach. And, and that's what I'm going to tell you that I feel like we're doing here, and that just means that I, I felt led, I felt persuaded, I felt almost a compulsion to teach this text that I believe to be from the Holy Spirit. And from the moment that we committed ourselves here at this church to teaching through these texts, God uh, has affirmed that in, in, in many ways. And if you want to talk to me about that, I'm more than happy to share that with you. But that's where we're going to do this study right now, because we believe it to be God's leading, okay? Second question you might have. Oh, by the way, grab your um, bulletin. Inside, there's an insert. You need it this week. The insert. There are sermon notes there. There are pictures there. There are graphs there. Um, you want to grab that? It's got things written on it that are going to be of great help to you. Um, all right. So here's, here's question number two. You may laugh. You just may laugh. Now you might say, because maybe you've heard this word. This word's very popular in churches today. Well, Pastor, is, is the same on now? Is it relevant? Is it relevant? Now, that term, I want to be honest with you, it's, it's so popular in churches today, churches that are trying as much as they can to be relevant, and if there's a show on TV like The Biggest Loser, then they're going to have a sermon series, The Biggest Loser. And, and you know what I'm saying? I mean, they're trying so much to be a part of society and relevant. Um, that question drives me nuts, though, because here's the deal. Uh, as we study Scripture as Christians, this is what we know. We know that God created all things, including us. So God is the creator, and we are the created. We know that the Bible is God's revelation of himself to man. Therefore, the Bible is God, the creator, revealing himself to that which is created. You can't get more relevant than that. You can't get more relevant than the creator speaking to his creation, going, Hello, this is how you should live. There should be a McFly in there somewhere, right? Hello, McFly. Anybody? Anybody? Right? Just me? Just me? You know, when you hear hello, you don't think McFly, my goodness. Not very relevant, I see. So let me do this this morning. Let me try to graciously answer that question the best that I can. If you're trying to well, is this study relevant? Uh, you know, is, is it going to deal with topics that are going on today? Let me just as graciously as I can. The Sermon on the Mount is going to address character. It's going gonna, it's gonna to start right there. It's going to address character, what, what we should look like as believers in Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is going to teach us how to live a blessed life. Anybody interested in that? Anybody want blessing? No? Just me? Okay. All right. The Sermon on the Mount talks about anger and murder, lust and adultery. It talks about marriage and divorce. It talks about promises and lies. It talks about retaliation and love. It is going to teach us how to give, how to pray, and how to fast. It is going to show us where to find real treasure, how to have real discretion, and where we should turn for real help. It's going to talk about the fact that there are really only two paths in life. But tree, a tree is always known by its fruit. It's going to, it's going to reveal that to us. It's going to talk about the fact that there is a confession that does not save. It's a big warning. It's going to remind us that there are two foundations that you can build your life upon. And that you need to choose wisely because one of them ends up in ruin. Now, I don't know about you, but I think those things are pretty relevant to life today. I think those things have a lot to do with who I am and where I am and the world that I live in. And so I would tell you that I believe this study is going to be extremely 
relevant, which leads me to our third question, which is honestly the biggest question when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you may think this has to do with relevance, but I want to show you this question goes so much further beyond that, okay? And here's the third question that I think people have when they come to this text. They would say, listen, do these teachings have modern-day implications? Do they have modern-day implications? And here's what they mean by that A better way to put that question, maybe, is to say this. Are these teachings meant for me? Are these teachings meant for me? Are these commands, even even better yet, are these commands expected of me? Are these commands expected of me? Are, are these things doable for me? And I want to tell you that throughout the centuries, theologians have been all over the map when it comes to this. Been all over the map when it comes to this very question. Is the Sermon on the Mount meant for me? Are these the things that I am supposed to be doing? And, and, and there's, there's all kinds of misinformation about how to attack these scriptures. And so I'm going to give you three wrong camps, three wrong approaches. And I say this to you in love because maybe you walk through the doors this morning and you belong to one of those three camps. And I want to tell you, I'm not trying to offend you, but I want to show you scripturally where those approaches are wrong. And then I, I want to build a biblical framework for how we will interpret the Sermon on the Mount and how we will attack the Sermon on the Mount and what we will expect from the teachings found in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so here's the first wrong approach. And I'm simply going to call it the grace approach. The grace approach. Now, grace is a wonderful thing, friends. Don't get me wrong. But here's what the grace approach would say when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. They would read the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. They would read the difficult teachings of Christ and they would say something like, um, excuse me, hold on, wait a second. I read that Jesus' yoke was easy and his burden was light. And these are not that. These teachings are difficult. These teachings are hard. These teachings are impossible. Therefore, they say, they cannot be of the era of grace. And so these people would go a step further and they would say, you know what Jesus is doing here? Jesus realized that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees had misinterpreted Mosaic or Jewish law. So what Jesus is doing, he's just reinterpreting Mosaic law for them. Them being the king of earth. And so, so what they're going to tell you is, listen, therefore it has nothing to do with you and I. It has nothing to do with believers in Christ. It has nothing to do with those living under grace. It's huge problems with that. Huge problems with that. Let's turn to the scriptures so that we can see them together. Look at verse 1 with me of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Now when he saw the clouds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. Underline this next little part, please. It's okay. Even if you have a pew Bible, I won't be mad at you. Listen. This next part, it says he sat down and then get this. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach who? Them. See, my greatest problem with the people that take this grace approach and say, the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with us. We live under grace. That has to do with old Mosaic law. Here's my greatest problem with that. Jesus isn't teaching the Pharisees. He's teaching the Pharisees. He's teaching his followers. He's teaching men that are going to be born again. He's teaching men that by the grace of God will be saved, according to Ephesians. And these same men that he's teaching, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he will say, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore I say to you, go and make disciples. 
teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. He, Jesus clearly expects these things out of his followers, and he tells his followers to teach these things to others. That's my greatest problem with that approach, okay? My second greatest problem with that approach is the Beatitudes. When we get to the Beatitudes, guys, we're not going to jump in with both feet and tackle all eight of them at the same We're going to spend a week on each one. We're, we're going to give it its due time, its due diligence. But just hear me now. The Beatitudes, there's nothing like them found in law. The Beatitudes aren't something you can check off of a list. The Beatitudes are something that you have to be. There, there's something that you are. There's something that the very essence and nature of character of a person that enters into the kingdom of God. That's not something that Mosaic Law can even come close to touching. And so that first one's got to be wrong. And maybe you walked in this morning and you're one of those Christians that you've been kind of living your life like that and you've been thinking, well, it's okay. I don't really have to live up to any kind of expectations because I'm covered by grace. Friends, Paul would say, listen, yes, you are covered by grace, but is that reason to sin? No! See, when we live that way, what we do basically is we treat the cross of Christ like it was a doormat. We walk out into a muddy, dirty world and experience anything that we want, and then we come back to Jesus and just step over a sacrifice. That's not what grace is intended for. That's not what grace is intended for. So it can't be grace, okay? Second approach. Second approach is the opposite of grace. It's the legalistic approach. Now, now where, where is, is the grace approach? Um, literally, uh, here, let me catch up in my notes. <laughs> Uh, well, the grace approach that first group claims to the point um, in practice that they don't actually take the plain teachings of Christ seriously. This group is the opposite. They embrace law to the point that, that they make it just a moral code and it has nothing to do with Jesus. Have you met somebody like that? They, they look at the Bible and it's just a, it, it's a list of rules of rights and wrongs and, and you, they believe and they act as if you can do those things apart from Christ. As long as I'm going to church, and as long as I'm reading the Bible, and as long as I'm praying, and as long as I'm not cussing, and as long as I'm not drinking, and as long as I'm not dancing, and as long as I'm not going to Disney, does that sound like this? And when you do this, right all of a sudden you realize, where is Jesus in the midst of these rules? I've forsaken the king for, for some written rules. And, and, and a huge part of the sermon of the Marcos is that Jesus is going to show us the law of God was never meant to be written on paper. It was meant to be written on your heart. That's the point. That's the point. And, and if you take the legalistic approach to the Sermon on the Mount, and many people turn to the sermon, and that's what they do in the world today. They say, oh, there's good morals taught here. If you do this, you're a good person. Here's the danger in it. If you legalistically tackle this sermon... Brother, you're going to do yourself harm. Early church father, Origen, who ended up being a heretic. But anyway, um, early on, people looked to him. He decided that his approach to the Sermon on the Mount would be just that way. That he would just do it legalistically apart from Christ. And so he began to just check off his list. And he got to that point that it said, if anything causes you to sin, you should cut it off. He castrated himself. I would say to you men, misinterpreting this sermon could have a great price. All right? Be careful. Be careful. Do not attempt this apart from Christ. Okay? That's the second group. Here's the third. The third approach, I would uh, say, is uh, the dispensational approach. Now, if you have a Schofield Bible, 
Um, some of this is in there. Schofield was a dispensationalist. What dispensationalists do, and I know that's a big term, they just try to group everything into eras. This, this was this phase of time, then came this phase of time, then came this phase of time. And, and it's an organizational method to try to help them understand the Bible. The problem is, it gets problematic when your method overtakes something that Scripture teaches. And, and so here's what they would say, basically, okay? So, so dispensationalists would say that Jesus came and in the Sermon on the Mount that he is attempting to establish the kingdom of God. Right? He's talking about the kingdom of God. Just, just begin it there in, in uh, verse 3, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said theirs right now. So they said Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God. However, the Jews, the Jews rejected it. Jews rejected the kingdom. So this is what they would say. Therefore, almost as an afterthought, Jesus had to die, and he went to heaven, and the the church era, or the church age, was ushered in. Now here's what they would say. The Sermon on the Mount is meant for the kingdom era, or the kingdom age, and we are in the church age. So they would say, therefore, the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with you and I, it just deals with when Jesus comes back and what things will look like then. Well, isn't that easier? Isn't that easier? Isn't that more convenient? And again, I almost don't know where to start, but let's just start with Scripture. Matthew 5, verse 3. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, underlying this, is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you can go back to the original language, the Greek, and it doesn't matter whether you're reading it in Greek, English, Latin, Spanish, Chinese, I don't care. That is a present tense verb. That is not a future tense verb. Okay, verse 3 is present tense. Now look at verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. All of those will be, will be, will be, will, those are all future tense. So, so Jesus literally says, listen, the kingdom of heaven is here. These people will be blessed in the kingdom. So, so there's this tension between present and future and present and future and present and future. And then the tension continues in verse 10. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that is, again, a present tense verb. Now, let me explain to you what's happening. We get into this in the book of Acts. Now, here's what I want you to do. Have you got their notes? Okay. Three of the videos. And then there's a chart. In between the foreground view and the chart, I want you to draw a line. Draw a line. This chart does not belong to dispensationalism. It does not belong to the third wrong view. It belongs to what we're about to talk about, which we believe to be the right view of Scripture and the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in the book of Acts, we talked about this big churchy word, inaugural eschatology. It just literally meant, it, it, do, you, do you remember what we are talking about? That the kingdom of God has present aspects and future aspects. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet consummated. It's the already not yet kingdom of God. And so here's what, this is the best graph I could give you. When we are born, everybody lives on that back plane, that first plane, this world. We are born as part of this world in the flesh, right? We're all here. When Christ came, when Christ came, that's what that middle thing is. If you look on your sheet, it's probably better. When Christ came, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. Okay? That's what he says to Nicodemus. Remember, you have to be born again. Anybody that was born again uh, during that time, all of a sudden, they lived in two planes. They lived in the physical plane, in the plane of this world. They also lived as members of the kingdom of God. That's what Ephesians talks about. That we're no longer foreigners, but now we're members of the kingdom of God, of his household, right? And, and so, so literally, if you're a Christian right now, you live in both planes. But the 
explain that, that already the kingdom has already come, but it has not yet arrived. Okay? Now, now with that, um, I'm going to use this, realize this last bit, and here's our approach. And I wrote this down for you because I want you to take it home. I want you to think about it. I want you to pray about these four things. They're in your notes. Okay? So you need to look at those four things. Number one, here's our approach. Joining with James, Paul, Peter, and early church fathers, we believe that the Sermon on the Mount applies to believers now. That it applies to believers now. And you're going to read it, you're going to go, wait a second, Pastor, some of those things are hard. Some of the things are difficult. You're right. We believe it applies to believers now. Listen, it is not merely history, nor is it merely some predictive prophecy of a righteousness that's yet to come. It applies to all of God's people today at this very moment in history. That's what we believe about the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you're going to go home and read it, and you're going to say, wait a second, Pastor, at some point in there, Jesus says, be perfect. You mean to tell me, joining with them, we believe the Sermon on the Mount is intended for believers right now. Right now, okay? Here's the second part of that. We believe the righteousness described in the, by the way, I didn't write Sermon on the Mount out every single time. So it says SM, that's Sermon on the Mount, okay? So, number two. We believe the righteousness described in the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, we're on the wrong one. Number two. There we go. We believe the righteousness described in the Sermon on the Mount should be the goal. You want to underline that? Should be the goal for the conduct and character of all believers in Christ. All believers. That should be our goal. Now listen, it's not an impossible goal. That means it's not designed to make you despair and to drive you to Christ. That's not what the Sermon on the Mountain 10 is. The law does that, friends. Remember, uh, Paul says that the point of the law is to, 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 to take us to Christ. That's the point of the law. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is to encourage believers to live here. This is what you're straining for. This is what you're trying for. Okay? Yeah. Not an impossible goal. Rather, its intent was to be a description of the effects of God's transforming grace. Number three. We believe the righteousness described in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and this is huge, cannot be attained through mere human effort. Cannot be attained through mere human effort. Okay, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do what? Diddly squat. That's my translation, okay? Nothing. Zip, zero, nada. Anybody else got something else other than nada? No? Okay. You come up with a new word, let me know. Nothing. You cannot do anything apart from Christ. Hear me now. You cannot do these things apart from the work of the Holy Spirit of God in you. You'll fail miserably. You'll feel like a failure. You'll feel like a disaster. You'll feel like some kind of disease, some kind of plague. What is wrong with me? Don't try it apart from Christ. You can't do it apart from Christ, okay? Cannot be attained through mere human effort. Rather, this righteousness is progressively produced in Jesus' disciples through the expression of God's saving power. As we remain in Christ, we bear fruit. How much fruit? Much fruit. As we continue to remain in Jesus, more of these things are going to start happening in our life. More of these things are going to start producing themselves in our life. It is a process, but it is one that we have to enter into. Number four. We believe this approach was the original intent of the Sermon on the Mount based on contextual evidence uh, of Matthew that reveals that the disciples of Jesus have been divinely enabled to fulfill the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. We will get into that next week. All right? Okay. So, that leaves us with one last question. If you're here, it's the best I could come up with. What else could they be thinking? Okay? 
Oh, so pastor, that sounds good, but one more time, why should I study this? Why should I study these three chapters? I'm going to give you four things and we'll be done. Number one, because Jesus died so that we could live it out. Jesus died so that we could live this out. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Not just eternal life, friends, but life here more abundantly, life that looks like Christ. Jesus died so we could be transformed into his image. That's the way that it works. That's the way that it works. It's a big deal. Okay, number two. We need to study this text because it reveals our absolute need for a new birth. Man, if you are religious, I I encourage you, study the Sermon on the Mount, and religion in you will die. And you will come to a point that you realize religion cannot save you. Religion cannot save you. We need to be born again. And I'm going to tell you, as I've prepared for this sermon series, I've been reading this text, and I've been reading it in different translations, and man, God has made it so apparent to me. I need that daily. Man, every day, I, I need the effects of my new birth to take part of me. You know, when David prays, restore to me the joy of me, so I need that daily. I need that passion. I need that fire. I need that desire to get up and to tackle the difficult things that God calls me to every single day. And I'm going to tell you, there's probably not another text in the Bible that will create that yearning within you other than these three chapters of Scripture. Number three. The more that we live and try to practice this sermon, the more we will experience blessing. Now listen, you, you know me well enough, I'm not a name it, claim it preacher. That's not what I'm telling you, but I am telling you that this passage of Scripture, like none other, tells you how to live a blessed life. It doesn't tell you how to live an easy life. Okay? Don't, don't you mistake me. It's not going to tell you how to live an easy life, but it is going to tell you how to live a blessed life. And I pray that that's what you long for. And then finally... This is probably one of my favorites. Number four, the fourth reason that we should study this is because it might be the best form of evangelism. The world that we live in is desperately looking for Christians whose lives actually reflect their beliefs. What is the number one reason people don't come to church? Apart from their own sin, hypocrisy. They don't come to church because they say that the church is full of hypocrites. That means the church is full of people that say one thing, but their lives reflect another. Hear me now. If there was ever a cure for that, it's going to be in the three chapters of Scripture that we're going to study over the next six months. If there was ever a cure for that. And and, and I want to tell you, if you'll commit yourself to it, if you'll commit yourself to these teachings, if you'll commit yourself to striving for this, then people will see a genuine change in you, and that genuine change will be attractive. Genuine change is always attractive. Always. So, what do you do? What do you do with this? All right, I'm going to give you two pieces of homework, and we're completely finished. Number one, start reading the sermon. Start, start this week. Start today. Now, here's the deal. It's only three chapters, so don't just read it once. We're going to be in it for six months. I think you should get very used to it. I would read it in the NIV. I would read it in the King James. I might just read it in the message like I am. I would read it in every version and every paraphrase and everything that I could read. Do you know why? Because each of them is going to open your mind and your heart to maybe a different aspect of this sermon. But here's what you got to do. you got to read it. And you say, Pastor, how should I read it? I don't know. Maybe read it a chapter a day for six months. See what that does for your life. Okay? Maybe you want to read it, you know, in those little subheadings that don't appear in the original text. <laughs> All right? How, how do yours go? Okay. Now, today I'm going to read the Beatitudes. Tomorrow I read something right. The next day, the fulfillment of the law. 
the day after that, murder. The day after that, adultery. Doesn't that sound like a great devotional? The day after that, divorce. Just work through it. I encourage you, man, just read it, read it, read it, read it, read it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Read it. And number two, as you read it, you've got to be praying about it. You've got to be. You've got to be praying about it. Because here's the deal. I just gave you our framework for how we will attack these three chapters of Scripture. I promise you, if you go home and read our approach and then you read the same on the mail, you're going to come back angry with me next week. You're going to come back and say, but Pastor, there's no way that I can do that. There's no way that I can live up to that. There's no way. I mean, these teachings are like here, and I'm from somewhere here. How do I do Are you sure that's the biblical approach to this passage? Isn't there another way out? And then we'll spend the next several weeks proving to you, well, yeah, this is the right approach, okay? But you've got to go home. You've got to read it. You've got to pray about it. Now, I'll give you this last little tip. This is for free. No extra charge. Dr. Mark Jones gives two, um, he calls them negative tests as you read the Sermon on the Mount. Ready? Here they are. They're huge. As you're reading and as you're praying, if at any time you find yourself arguing with the Sermon on the Mount at any point, if at any time you find yourself arguing with the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, rising up and going, that can't be right. If at any point as you read through it, you find yourself arguing, get this. He says it means that either there is something wrong with you or there's something wrong with your interpretation of it. And he goes on, he says, either my whole spirit is wrong and I'm not living the way that I should or I'm misinterpreting the passage. If you're, if, if, if you're there and you think you might be missed, come see us, we'll talk to you. Talk to you about how to rightly interpret it. We'll, we'll show you different commentaries and things that you can look at. But, but I'm just going to tell you, as you read through it, it's going to challenge you you, you, your, your flesh is going to run away up and say, no, that can't be right. That can't be accurate. Really? See, you said, Jesus, this is your Bible. I can't even look at a person in lust. Really? Wait, wait, you're telling me it's not okay just that I don't kill somebody, but I can't even get angry? I can't lose my temper? This is your Bible, Jesus? And I can attain that? Seriously? Do you know me? If at any point you find that happening in you, it's a sign that something in you is wrong and broken and in need of repair. Okay? Second negative test, he says. If at any point while you're reading, you think to yourself, that's impossible. Then again, either something's wrong with you or you're misinterpreting what it says. Okay? Now, are you ready? the only question I have, is are you ready? Because what we're going to do here in this church for the next six months is we are going to be drawn in to that scorching light. We're going to fly as close as we can to it. And we're going to pray that while it burns, that what it's burning away is all of the impurities that need to be burned away, that we might look more like Jesus. And what I'm going to ask you this morning is,